Okay, okay. Uh, delete all that. Please, please delete that. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 60th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, 14th of February 2015, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, the show was kept alive and kicking by the very generous monthly subscribers Jeffrey S, Amir H, MMBKG, Ambrose A, John T, Derek McHugh, and Jesse L. There were also three new iTunes reviews on the Irish site and three on the UK site, only two of which I could actually see. They were by Terra Norb and James O'B. Thanking you, gentle people. If you didn't hear a thank you being read out for your review, please fire me an email, drop me a line on the Facebook page, the YouTube channel, or over on Twitter, or just leave a message in the comment section of the show, and I'll make sure to give you a shout-out on next week's show. You too can help the podcast in its battles with the iTunes ratings war. The instructions on how to enlist are included in the show notes. The show has also joined forces in this ratings war with the Stitcher app, so you can easily listen to the show on your mobile phone. Check it out, and you can also drop a review there too. Anyways, this week I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Doug Lane, host of what was once called the Diet Soul podcast, but which is now the Zero Squared podcast. We talk about why Doug's new job as publisher of Zero Books doesn't make him a capitalist, what econophysics has to do with Marx, capitalism as objective reality, base versus superstructure, radical politics and the current balance of forces, how Woody Allen has lost his way, the latest book Doug's working on, and how cool and communist Star Trek is. Doug, you got yourself a new job. I do. Yeah, I do. I have a new job over at Zero Books. I'm the new publisher at Zero Books, and my podcast is changing to be aimed at Zero Books authors rather than just all over the place as it has been in the past. It's sort of a, a, a strange time for me because I'm thinking about quitting my day job to this uh, book publishing stuff and writing and podcasting full time, which seems a little scary to, to do. But What is your day job, Doug? My day job is working at the Oregon Symphony uh, in the ticket office. I sit behind a counter and then people who love classical music come in and they, and they ask for specific seats and they irritate me while I try to check my Facebook and so that's my day job. And that's how you get all your good classical music intros. Well, it's why it's why I'm kind of interested in. I mean, I I was not a, a big classical music fan. It's not like I didn't like classical music, but I was not in any way a fan of classical music until many years after having worked at the Oregon Symphony. And even now, I would say that I'm more focused on 20th century and, and odd music stuff that I would never hear at a symphony concert. But uh, I do like classical music now, and you know it's just sort of seeped into me. So how did you end up getting this gig? Uh, well, it's because I do diet soap in a roundabout way. I mean, it's uh, it was because Tariq and Godard. Uh, I'm sorry, those that's the same guy. Tariq Godard left, and they needed someone to fill the spot. And David Blacker, a former guest on Diet Soap, and you know he's been on a couple times. He may have been on Alpha to Omega. So yeah, he put, he he recommended me to to them, and and. Uh, after they tried one guy out who quit in two days' time because of the political pressure, uh, they asked me, and I, I just don't care. So <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean for Diet Soap? Here, here's my statistics. What percentage of like stuff is going to be zero books authors versus other random stuff? I would say two-thirds zero books authors. Because you've been having quite a few of them on already, I think. Yeah, I've you? had a few on, and I've been do, trying to... I was going to do it the other way around, have Duo Zero Books podcast as a supplement to Diet Soap on a regular basis, and like maybe do one-third or a quarter of all my podcasts on Zero Books. But that was before I landed a job, and now they're paying me to do it, so the numbers got reversed, <laughs> and there'll be more Zero Books, but still many things that are not zero books related at all. For instance, this weekend I'm going to be interviewing James Morrow, who's a science fiction writer, probably best known for a book from the 80s called Towing Jehovah, 
Uh, and he has a new novel out. And I'll be interviewing him for the Zero Books podcast because I think people who read Zero Books should know about that. And because I like James Morrow. Will it pay enough to do full-time? It pays almost as much as what I, I make now from working full-time with the, for my day job, which just shows you how pathetic my day job is. But um, I have other jobs. Like I am writing a novel, and I, I'm putting together two short story anthologies, and I do some freelance work for an English-as-a-second-language website. And that's the big thing, actually, that makes some money. But that that's going to be – those two jobs together would be more than what I make now from my day job, the – publishing job and the English as a second language website together would be more. So it, it seems like I'm holding myself back by working full time at a job that pays very little, but does have benefits. But uh, yeah, healthcare, which I know for you, that's alien, right? I mean, you've healthcare. Yeah. What exactly is healthcare? <laughs> Sorry, well, I, I've heard of it, <laughs> but I don't know what it is. <laughs> no, you know it. Eh? Well, okay. <laughs> well tell us about zero books then and what's the ethos well zero books is a left-wing publisher they it's eclectic it you know when i first found it i thought if i were to have a publishing house that just published what diet soap does but as books it would be this publishing house i mean it it, it turning to zero books to interview authors before i got this job seemed like a natural fit. It was actually just going to make my work a lot easier. I wouldn't have to work or struggle so hard to find people who were a good fit with what I was already interested in because there was this publishing house that was already publishing books on aesthetics, philosophy, uh, left-wing politics, uh, art, history, art. All of that was is in there. I would say it's basically a left-to-Marxist book publisher with a lot of critical theory and cultural studies in there as well. So I think I read somewhere about what your wishes for it going forward would be. What What is its kind of uh, mission statement? Tariq Goddard, before he left, he wrote, and when he, when he founded the, the imprint, wrote a great manifesto for what Zero Books is about. And I haven't rewritten that yet. I, I'm I'm thinking I may actually write my own version of that uh, eventually. But what I did was I just announced that I'm going to be the new freelance publisher there and sort of said the, what kinds of things I'd like to see. And whenever you say the kinds of things you'd like to see, you always end up leaving out other things that you'd also like to see. And, and you ha end up having people write to you and say, what about this? Like you didn't mention film theory. But what I really would like to do, like uh, I'll just tell you. Uh, I would like to, and you can keep leave this in. I'm, uh, this is rhetorically, I'm, I'm just telling you. I would like to publish Brendan Cooney. That's like number one, the bullet. What I'd like to do is publish a Brendan Cooney book. I understand he's working on a, a, a book on Marx and he's doing that with another press. But when he's done with that, I'd really like him to, to write a, a, a real easily accessible, popular kind of book on the law of value or, or on Marx's economy, uh, economics or, or, or something like that for zero books. I'd also like to publish Guys like uh, Mark Derry, who's been a, on my podcast before, who's a really interesting cultural theorist. I'd like to find people who write avant-garde fiction and publish a weird novel that's radical. Um, I've been talking to Rudy Rucker, the old cyberpunk guy, to write a book for, for Zero Books. Maybe you should go in there and, you know, offer a better deal and get your new capitalist class. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if I'd be able to. And also... You know, I, uh, there are other people who, like Andrew Kleiman, uh, who helped Brendan get this deal that I don't want to make mad. And I'd, I'd like Kleiman to write a book for Zero, too. So, you know, you got you to gotta pick your battles. But, yeah, eventually I'd like to have all those guys on there writing for me. I'd like to have a book on the Firestone feminists, you know, the second wave 60s feminists. And and Marxist feminists coming out of zero, and I, you know, I've been looked around for someone who might want to write something about about that. But I thought you were a misogynist. Um, not professionally, but not when you're on the clock for your job. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. It's hard to get it. Um, there's a lot of amateurs there out are. there. That's right. It's a field dominated by amateurs, and idiots. I was asked this evening not to be patronising or sexist. Well, fair enough, let's face it, birds can't take it.
You're not offended, are you? Of course not, you're thinking about shoes. <laughs> Don't worry, that's postmodern misogyny. That joke is, in fact, steeped in irony. So don't you worry your pretty little head about it, love. I wanted to talk to you or ask you about, you had this guy on and, and uh, he was just great about the, um, he was philosophical about the essence and then how that was important to Marxists to believe in some sort of essentialism. I thought that was a great podcast. And then the very next one, you have this guy on and he um it's talking about econophysics. Yeah, econophysics, and it, and that just seems like it couldn't be Marxist to talk about econophysics, but, but maybe. But he is a Marxist, yeah. He's a yeah, total okay, Marxist. Okay. Nearly all these angles, and people start like looking at Marx. They nearly all end up coming out and say, "God, yeah, it, it kind of holds up." Right. <laughs> you know? That's true. That's true. But he didn't talk. He didn't have. A, it seemed to me that he was talking about. Um, money like he was a monetarist instead of a, a a value theorist no i think yeah like i think he was talking about class well i think if this is the right one where he was talking about when they look at the distribution of wealth you know if you look at the graph it might look like a bell or something like that you know or whatever way yeah. it looks and when you're doing say physics and you say oh you know we've got some particles coming out of the sun here and we're going to graph what they look like that sometimes some half of it might be maybe there's like photons coming and they have a distribution a certain way and then maybe there's some other particles come and they have a slightly different distribution right and when you put them to the two of them together they look instead of looking like a you know a slash going one way maybe there's a slash going another way at the end of it and it looks like a v or something like this so he's like saying that when they look at the distribution of wealth say in america or england or ireland or whatever that there's everybody lumped kind of on one end and then there's this like weird other kind of part of the distribution and that other part is essentially capitalists and then the other part then is everybody who works for a wage and how these econophysicists or which are basically physicists that looks at economic data and trying to look at it from a physics point of view and they kind of looked at the two of them and went oh yeah shit this looks like what Marx said well, the only thing I was going to say about it is just that it seemed to me that by focusing on the distribution of wealth that he was ignoring production and value production and that it, once you start talking about the way things are just the money or wealth is distributed as being determinative of of class, I start to go, well, that's not Marxist. I mean, it's not that it's not true that distribution that things are distributed unequally under capitalism, and it's not and it's not that it's not true that wealth uh, accumulates amongst certain capitalists, you know, and that the, the workers get poorer and poorer. But it's not because of some energy pattern or i don't know it's not like the we're talking about molecules in space we're talking about a production process a game a, a social relation and that seemed to be left out he was just looking at some of the data like you know you can't probably sometimes you have to look at just take bits and see does this bit look like marx you know does this bit look like marx <laughs> and i think what he was trying to say was like this just looking at income distribution that looks like marx because the people who are at the top who are the capitalists their income grows in a multiplicative way. So what's the, what I mean by that? Like, so say every year, if I'm a worker, I just kind of earn the same amount. If I earn 10 grand, I earn 10 grand next year. You know, maybe I get lucky and I earn 1% more or something. But the, the behavior of the capitalists, they were earning profit, essentially. So they were like starting off one year with 10 grand and the next year they were getting 10, 20% profit. It would go to 12 grand and then the next year it would be like right, right, right. Whatever, well, they, 14 grand. So, yeah. the, so, the, the, so just the actual, the look of these two different income types, one of them was of the nature where it would like expand a lot. And he was saying this is like what Marx would say from the, your circuit of capital. You keep putting your money in, you reinvest your money and you're kind of getting profit essentially. But if you're a, if you're a carpenter, say, and you make and you're a really high skilled carpenter, and you make beds for people who you know own yachts that circle the earth using anti gravity, so you're like you're getting paid well by these people, and you're making a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, you're you're going to take some of that and invest it, and you're going to be making more the next year than you did the year before, even you know even though you're a worker. You might, yeah, but it probably it'll only be a percentage of his income. You know, like if you're earning a hundred grand a year, so he's doing well for himself, it'll probably blow about eighty grand a year, and he might save twenty grand. So twenty grand will go into his 
interest earning or into some business or whatever he puts in a bond or whatever and that will operate like capital but most of it will operate like consumption so he'll probably still end up well this is the thing your man was saying is like that what tends to happen is you, most people just stay in that one distribution where you're earning fuck all but every so often say you're a basketball player and you get like 10 million dollar a year right. salary or something you're still a wage earner but because you won't spend all that that extra bit can then go in and operate like capital for you and then you actually jump from one distribution into the other distribution so there'll be some people who'll be behaving part worker part not worker like even if you're thinking about yourself and if you've got a, a pension you know your pension is capitalist you know that's right sure right. capital yeah essentially so most of us nowadays in a modern economy have a some kind of a, a mix but the overall distribution is still heavily workers capitalists and it's not this kind of multi-class phenomenon that people might think that there's all these different types. Oh, yeah, we've got, you know, single moms or blah, blah, and different classes. We've got working class, we've got middle class. But basically, no, it's, if you're a physicist, you just go, fuck it. There's only photons and, and electrons. That's it. The rest <laughs> right, is bullshit. Right, 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 right. You know, that's kind of what he's saying. There's capitalists and there's workers. That works. That looks like the best way to model the economy. you got workers being exploited and capitalists yeah, being yeah, exploited. Yeah. I, I, one thing about back, bringing it back to my little life is that as I leave my day job to go into being a freelance writer or freelance creative person, because I, I podcast and I, I do video editing and I, I write and I publish and I edit and all this stuff. As I leave that day job, I'm actually not, not really going into another realm of being a worker. I'm a I'm a capitalist once I'm a freelance writer, I think. No, you're not. No, you can be self-employed to still be a worker under Marx. Yeah, I know, but, I, but I'm not. Yeah. It's only if you're employing somebody else and taking a cut. Well, I am. See, that's the thing. As a publisher, I'm, bu- I'm buying books from people. Well, you're not. Somebody else is. No, no. I, I, well, I'm, I, don't put, I don't put any of my personal income into it, but I acquire the books, and then I get a royalty based on how well they sell. And then, but not that there's a lot of money, and uh, so far it's none because I haven't acquired any new books yet. I just started, you know, 10 days ago. But then also, I'm buying short stories for an anthology. I was paid to do this, and now I'm taking the money I was paid and, and spending it on buying short stories. My, my task is to spend as little as I can on these short stories, pay these writers as little as possible. But I also have to try to get, like, Stephen King and, and like our big name to be like the marquee name for a short story collection. So I'm trying to go after these guys, talk to their agents and stuff. Not for Zero. This is for um, Nightshade Books and Skyhorse as the main publisher there. So like that's capitalist. And then, and then even as a writer, it's not like my work, you know, you had this conversation with Andrew Kleiman. It's like, it's not like my work is, uh, I'm not reproducing something. I'm making original work and then the, my way of making money on it is to claim ownership rights of that work so like zero books i would say like that's the model of how they pay you a wage sure if you know what i mean well they also pay me a wage i mean i also just get paid yeah but the wage is probably the pay the wage is probably yeah. shite <laughs> is it if you didn't have if you didn't yeah. have the other parts you know it's like working in a diner you're you they pay you fucking two dollars an hour in america and you have to live earn on your live on your tips you know what i mean you know, like there's many different ways the book company could pay you money. You know, they do it in a way that maybe trying to incentivize you, but makes you feel like a capitalist. I don't even feel if I don't even feel particularly guilty about like it changing classes. I've been working class for a long time, and if I end up in a in the capitalist class for a little while, it doesn't bother that won't bother me morally because it's not like my being in or out of that class is going to change anything overall. You know. To be honest with you, like I wouldn't consider yourself as a capitalist. <laughs> right. You know, you know, if you're like, you know, if you're doing like a, a small publishing job and they just, you know, it's like having a sales job in a right. shop. Yeah. You know, and they give you a commission. That's just yeah, the way to right. think about it. It's not, you know, like a, if you you know yourself, you get a you write a short story or something, you get it published into a book. You're fucking delighted to get it into a book. Right. You know, you do it for free. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. It's not like there's a real exploitation there going on. You know, maybe you'll exploit Stephen King. I'd hope, to, I hope I'd like to exploit Stephen King. Everybody and their brother wants to exploit Stephen King. But no, it, no, my point, though, is that 
I like getting to a level of thinking about this stuff where whether or not like it's it's not it's not a personal moral category for me. It doesn't have like whether or not you're working class or a capitalist class is completely just an objective fact. It doesn't have anything to do with how you feel about the world or whether you're a nice person or a mean person or whether you want to exploit someone or you don't want to exploit someone. It's just like, how do you fit in the economy? It does. This is it's more than just an objective fact. Do you think so? Totally. Sure. Why, why haven't I working in the city of London making a shitload of cash? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't I do it? You know, and I had, I've had jobs where I worked in jobs that I don't know how I worked in them now. And you just kind of go, like, now I wouldn't work in them. But why wouldn't I? <laughs> you know, because you go, I fucking sucked hanging around working oh, in yeah. uh, something that was destructive. You know, so I think that people do. It's not just objective. Well, okay. Okay. I could. I guess that's fair. I just like to say so many, so much of what goes on talks about class on that level of the subjectivity and uh, about moral choice. That's that's how we tend to like to think about it. And I just like to go, no, 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 it's subjective. Let's think about actually how it works like a machine and and how it works, you know, like a game. And then we can start to think about getting beyond it rather than figuring out whether we're good or bad within it, you know. So you're going to be one of those people who has a job that you enjoy now. But I think it can be more high pressure. But uh... Yeah, no, it is. It's definitely more high pressure. That's one of the things I realized was like as I'm trying to write this novel and meet deadlines and things and, and they're really there and it's really – and I'm going, why on earth did I ever want to write books? What was I, nuts? Yeah. <laughs> why don't I just go to work, come home, watch TV? That's much better than this garbage about getting up before in the morning and trying to be smart write something in you know for the ages my god or release your potential that's another one that's a very very dangerous idea you should stay away from your potential i mean that is something you should leave absolutely alone don't you'll mess it up it's potential leave it (laughs) and anyway it's like your bank balance you know you always have a lot less than you think don't look at it. No, no. Leave it as a kind of the locked door within yourself. And that's how it should be. Because then at least in your mind, the interior will always be palatial, you know? Wonderful gleaming marble floors, brocaded drapes, mullioned windows covered in mullions, whatever they are. And flamingos serving drinks. Pianos shooting out canapes into the mouths of elegant men and women who are exchanging witticisms. Don't open the door. Because it won't be like that. All you're going to see will be one tiny, grey, startling little cat with diarrhoea. <laughs> Sitting on a mattressless, iron-sprung bed with its huge eyes mewing at you. As an emphysemic landlady untangles her pop socks in the background. And some terrible guy, the colour of an aubergine, rounds the corner holding a mug of beef tea, wearing a string vest and says, Man. <laughs> That's your potential. You, you said here, is it possible to change the base by changing the superstructure? Right. That's an interesting one. Talk about that, because I've mentioned that to, I think, Brendan Cooney before, and he wasn't particularly enamored by that idea well yeah but yeah i mean if you if you say no to that well let's let's explain for people okay. just what we mean by that first because uh it's easy just to throw out these terms and forget that maybe people are listening for the first time right, okay the base of society if you're a marxist and i think if just in general the base of society is the economy it's it's why things are made you know what what is the you know if you want to be materialist about it uh in a kind of a simple way it's like the base of society is how many roads do you have? How many sewage plants do you have? How many pipes do you have? How many houses do you have? But the other thing that's the, at the base of society is not just how many, but what kind. But also, how do you go about making things? What is the relationship between people that allows them to plant the crops or, or build the buildings or make the Wii or the Nintendo, the Nintendo Wii or the iPod or whatever it is? What What is... That's the base of society. And, you know, under Marx's 
uh, analysis at the base of society under capitalism is is value production is the exploitation of labor through a working day so basically the exploitation of labor time and the making a profit through wage labor so the question is if you're a radical publisher the superstructure well okay what's the superstructure the superstructure is what you do with your free time what 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 you put in those houses the legal system yeah the the churches are now part of the superstructure the, the all the the stories you tell yourself the fantasy that you live through to kind of justify the base is often thought of as a superstructure but you know there it's the everyday life in the in the ideas in the realms that you create political system the government yeah political system mm-hmm but it's not only those things. I mean, it's also it's like the school system, it's churches, it's the media, it's you know a New Year's Eve party. It's all superstructure. Maybe I'm too broad. It's the shit on top. Yep. <laughs> but publishing is part of that superstructure. Yeah, this podcast is part of it. Right. So if you don't believe that you can change the base by changing the superstructure, then why give a lecture on Marxism? Because a lecture on Marxism is superstructure, right? Yep. So, <laughs> so, but obviously you can't really change the base through just changing the superstructure. You know, changing the lineup on NBC to be only members of the Communist Party <laughs> is not going to change the base of society. It's not that you can only you only have to change the superstructure, but you, but the only tools that you seem to have are the super are these tools in the superstructure. At least that I have. Certainly, as a radical publisher, that's the only tool I'm playing with. Yeah, no, I heard Chomsky saying that Marx, when he was later on in his life, he was saying that he wasn't sure how far you could push reform through, say, parliamentary politics. Could you get to communism that way? That it, this is what Chomsky said that it, uh, Marx was saying that it wasn't like a, a hard answer that Marx had. No, you can or yes, you can't. That it was up for up for grabs, which to me is quite surprising from Marx the revolutionary to Marx the parliamentarian is, is quite the the jump well the question is you know what's the aim I, mean, I, I think it's not uh, at all surprising that Marx would be willing to consider any and all means to make a radical break you know so like if the if you think the radical reforms can get to a complete break with capitalist form then well, why not there's nothing wonderful about armed revolution definitely not yeah <laughs> so you know so why not just uh pass the right legislation i think that it's unlikely to get to get us there it's likely just to lead to an armed confrontation anyway isn't well it? It, it could lead to an armed confrontation or it could just be put down through the next round of legislation you know it could go either way but but, but basically here's the thing if you look back on the 20th century even a complete revolution, armed overthrow, didn't actually change the base of society in, in the Soviet Union. My opinion is that was still a capitalist state. And I know that's not every Marxist opinion, but I think that's true. So it becomes a real problem. Like, how, how is it even possible to change the base of society? But, and then the only way I know to think about it is through the superstructure. <laughs> you know, if you're going to answer that question, you're going to probably have to think pretty hard and write books and talk about it and, I don't know, do some sort of, sort of experiments about it or look at the evidence, do some empirical research. It's the annoying thing of dialectics that it's, it's, everything seems to play in back and wrap itself on top of itself. <laughs> right. You know, in, in some way that's completely incomprehensible. Yeah. Well, have, did you listen to some of the podcasts I did uh, about Hegel? Because, God, that guy was, you know... Every time you think you've figured out what he's saying, it flips back around on itself. And what seemed like he was advocating and now he's dashing and, you know, denying. And it, it just kept flipped that, you know, it was definitely reading the phenomenology was this hyper nuanced version of just heads or tails, <laughs> you know. I'd be interested in reading Hegel, but I have no interest in actually reading Hegel, if you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean. Right. I'd like to I'd like to know and understand what he what he was talking about, you know, actually really understand what he was on about. But I do not want to actually have to read him. So if anybody's out there and they know a good book, 
<laughs> Let me know. You know, an idiot's died to he- Hegel. That's that's not written by uh, some kind of crazy right wing guy. <laughs> Most, mostly these things tend to be written. Yeah. My friend of mine, we're talking about Marx and he said that he he read Das Kapital. And I was saying, did you? And he said, yeah. And he said, oh, I, I said, did it take you long to read it? And he said, no, I read it, I read it in about a week. And I was like, I said, you read Capital in a week? And he said, yeah. And I said, are you sure it was like the proper version? He goes, oh, well, I think it was like, you know, an abridged version written by somebody else. And <laughs> it turned out it was written by some like right wing guy who just like, <laughs> it was cheaper. He was too cheap essentially <laughs> to buy the, the proper book. So we brought one like 50 page synopsis by some like, Right wing loon, <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't too impressed. <laughs> you know, he said, "This Marx guy, yeah, it's not too good." You know, I didn't really like it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you can't do that with you know. You're gonna have to. The thing about Hegel is, if you've read, if you've spent a couple of years reading philosophers, he is not that bad. He really isn't. He just, you know, he's bad though. <laughs> but he's he's not that much worse than say Spinoza. Yeah, I can't take that stuff. It makes my head hurt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I look for clarity. In Marx, you get clarity. Even though some of it's complex, it's kind of clear. It's not like I've no idea what that sentence meant and you have to read it 20 times. <laughs> right. Well, sometimes the thing is, the reason why you have to read it 20 times is because what it means is not actually a sensical thing. <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes it's just a matter of letting it mean what it seems to mean, but you want it to mean more. And it doesn't. It just actually means what it absolutely appears to mean on the surface. Like, you know, uh, if you're reading Hume and he's saying something like, causation is simply a habit of mind. You know, that seems like, wow, that you've got to, what, how could he say that? But, you know, he just means exactly that, that we have no reason to believe that what set up a causal relationship in the past is going to continue to. That's just a habit of our mind. There's no basis for that belief. And, and that's not that hard. It just is counterintuitive, I think. So I think I need to start with Hume and work my way up. Hume would be good. Pl- I like the empiricists a lot. They're they're good fun. I don't know if we settled anything, but do you feel like you know there's any chance for uh, the right radical idea to come out and change the way we organize politically, or do you think that we're just kind of whistling by the graveyard here, waiting for somebody? who's not a podcaster or a writer to, to do something. I think we're probably part of a broad general trend. I, I, think mo- I think a lot of the questions are out there, are being answered probably 100 years ago, to be honest, from what I can see. It's just that they didn't work. Say, like, there's all these things like cancel communism or participatory economics or something like, like these that are all quite of a similar ilk. You know, they just haven't been put into practice how you get to that position through politics and through through interacting with humans and power relations is the problem. It seems to me like that there are probably lots of really quite good solutions out there, but it's this kind of political problem. Like, do we need new theories to get to that political solution? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we need new theories or we just need more action. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm always, you know, I, I'm always tending to these days lean towards not new theories, like we're just going to cook them up, but like uh, more thinking on the old problems because more action, we can get a lot of action. I think we could get, here's what I think. I think we could get every single person on the planet to leave their house, hold hands and protest for an hour or for a day even. Well, a day we might all die, but like, <laughs> but you know, for an hour we could just. The, I left the cooker on. Yeah, right. <laughs> Something horrible would happen if everyone was doing this. But, but uh, you know, for an hour, every man and woman over the age of eighteen was out on the street in protest, and nothing would change. It's like more is not it. It's it's what just as much of as how many. It's not just a quantity of. It's not just that we have to say strongly this isn't working. But would you not say that if we look back at history now, I'm not an expert in this stuff. Yeah. So, but if you look back at history, that there are like, say, these kind of Bolshevist type revolutions that were, or maybe Guevarist revolutions, something that there was certain of these were were tried more so than other types of revolutions. 
and that these ones maybe haven't worked out that well that like people kind of say right we don't want to do that one now but we'd like to do this other one right yeah. so we'd like to try it have a different type of society we know that one is kind of crappy let's try and do a new one and we'll have it like this after the revolution but the problem is not so much that we don't know what it is that we just don't have the political force the numbers of people who actually are radical actually want to change society to go and do and put into place one of these things you know, I just don't see modern society as radical at all. I think when I look at my own life and I look at my own opinions and how they change, like the vast milieu of people don't know this stuff that we're talking about. Right. No, I know that's true. Um... Compa compared to like, you know, and compared to like I said this on another podcast, I don't know whether it was edited out, <laughs> but compared to say like Ireland, right, as a microcosm. Like in, in 1916, when there was one of the rebellions against British rule in Ireland, there was also James Connolly, who was like, apparently at the time, internationally in the communists and radical socialist circles, he was more famous than Lenin. OK, this guy. And he had two or three hundred armed guys in Dublin with machine guns to hold out. And they were going to have a socialist violent revolution in Dublin. Like, to me, that's just insane. I can't imagine it. Right. You know, it's just totally, totally insane to think that there would be such uh, an amount of people who are really radicalized in an in-depth, you know, Marxist way that they, that there would be two or three hundred of them to take out machine guns and try and, you know, take over Dublin. Like, it's just crazy to think that that happened then. Like, how how much more radical were people then than they are now? To me, it's just... It just strikes me as mind-boggling. Yeah, but it didn't work. It didn't work. But the problem is, like now, if you're t if we're talking about where we are and all of this thing, it seems to me like we're just so far away from. Not that that would be a good thing to take up arms, start shooting people. You know, I don't have an opinion left, or, you know, one way or the other. I'm just saying that we're so far away from having that kind of political force. What percentage of the public were radical political people? I don't know. See, in the United States right now, there's a lot of people who are really upset about the way the world works. And they're organized around Black Lives Matter. And two years, three years ago, there were a lot of people, they weren't nearly as upset, but they were upset about the way the world works, and they were in Occupy. And I think that those people who are organized around Black Lives Matter are just as radical in their rejection of the society that is as the people in Dublin, you know, in 1916. They're not armed, and they don't have a leader the same way, but, and they don't have the ambition, maybe, to be the new order. But they're... But are they, would you call them communists, or are they people who are just kind of a bit... Like, I, I was at the Occupy here in London a, a good bit, and it was really a, a quite a mix you know, a very strange mix of of every type of different alternative thing you could think of, like from left to right. Yeah, no, I, I, they're not communists, but you're you're right. And and in that sense, the the guys a hundred years ago were more radical than we are now. But I think that we, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what's holding us back as far as that goes. But but I think even the most radical, my my opinion is that even the most radical thinkers today don't know. Mm -hmm exactly how to break out of capitalism the best thinkers in the that i i can come across are good at describing what capitalism is and that's where it ends like i think that it's kind of like if if i assume marx was to talk about it they would talk about things like balances of the forces you know what are the balances of the revolutionary force versus the bourgeoisie force and all that so like I think if Marx was alive today, he would look at the thing and he'd just go, oh, yeah, no chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the forces are way too weak. <laughs> but keep chipping away there, guys. Keep chipping away. And like, that's, that's the yeah. way I, I look at it. You know, that, that it, it would just kind of go, yeah, the forces, you know. Even somewhere like Greece where things are going very bad and they have a history of communist run society in the war that fought the Germans, whatever, you know, where they have a history of radical political activity from people that are still alive. Even there, Syriza can only get 27% of the vote. Okay, so that's 
like the most radicalized Western country, not talking about South America, but Western country that's that's there at the moment. Maybe Spain is coming up close behind. You know, they had a revolution in 1936. You know, they get you know, 26, 27 percent. Maybe this is the birth of something that's coming. But we'll see what happens with those. They're probably most likely to be radical Keynesian in outlook. Right. Well, we'll have to see. My hope is that by publishing a few books, like, you know, publishing Brendan Cooney through zero books, that will change the world. (laughs) Yeah, no, I really, I'm waiting for Brendan's new book. No, that's going to be exciting. I really am. I'm looking forward to that a lot. And he's, I know he's just killing himself trying to write the perfect book. You know, he's trying to get it all right, you know, all cross all the T's and dot all the I's. And and he's got Andrew Kleiman helping him, breathing down his neck, going, no, 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 that's not right. So, <laughs> yeah, he spelled that wrong yeah, again. That's right. So it's going to be a good book, for sure. I, I was talking to him six months ago, maybe, but he said that he had written the whole book, and then he read some other book on, I think, dialectics, and then he realized that the whole thing was wrong. So we had to start from scratch. Yeah, that's the, I hear that and I just go, that's how books should be written. You know, a professional though would just go, I'll write another book. I'll correct that later. (laughs) They'd publish that one. That one's wrong. What I wanted to do is read that book that made him start again. Yeah, what was it? Okay, so, well, welcome to the Darnell Bennett Show. So tonight, or later tonight, or I guess it is later tonight, tonight we will discuss a book. That is so awesome that Tom Hanks portrayed the protagonist as so cool that uh, that the uh, co-star lady did such a good job. And of course, we have our man, the albino with the whip, who did his thing. We're talking about The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. I said by Dan Brown. Yes, it's by Dan Brown. One thing is you wrote here in, uh, in, in, the, in the emails that you'd like to talk about the aim of radical publishing. So let's do a question on that. Well, I wanted to talk about it. I don't have an answer for it, but let me ask you, would you make a radical podcast and, you know, you, there gets to be a point when you're making a podcast on a, a weekly or bi-weekly or monthly basis that not every podcast you do is going to be exactly right. Now you do some that are, are, you go, yes, that is as close to the truth as I can get to. And then you do some where you go, I don't know about that. But you keep going and you do good and bad because the project itself has its own demands. It's not about individual ones. It's about the whole project, right? So, you know, what do you think the whole, the aim of the whole project is? Like all, like I did, I just finished doing five years of Diet Soap. Now it's not over because I'm changing the name and I'm bringing it to zero books. But in a one sense, Diet Soap is now behind me. You know, that podcasting isn't, interviewing the way I, I interview isn't, even the tape flip isn't, but Diet Soap in some way is behind me. And I just go, you know, what what was what did I hope to achieve with the whole of that work beyond, you know, self-promotion or just getting more listeners or what have you? And what does radical publishing have to offer? What is the aim of radical publishing today? I mean, with, with, with Lennon, the, the aim was to foment revolution, right? The newspapers were weapons really but i don't think it's realistic to say that sitting where i am that zero books is going to be a weapon necessarily i think i find about say this podcast is that you know you probably have in my head some kind of (laughs) the more i get into marx and things the more revolutionary (laughs) you want it to be but i do wonder sometimes is it just a product you know is it something that somebody who's kind of left wing can consume every couple of weeks and i i think that probably a lot of it it just ends up being something people consume you know but it's not like that isn't a value in itself right i mean it is it is but it's like the least positive thing it could be 
of all the things it could be is just a, a consumption of of news or or comment. Well, I mean, okay, here's the thing about about it. Um, if you're creating you're creating a use value when you talk about something that people consume, you're talking about something people that they use it up, they get what they need out of, they get a sense of hope for the future, they get a sense of uh, maybe relief. Not from this podcast. No, not from mine either. But you know, theoretically, yeah, you might just by being so down on the on everything. It's like, oh, that guy understands how awful things are, just the way I do. Maybe things will change. You know, that's hopeful for the the future. Maybe you get a sense of uh, just being part of a club. You know, you're not alone. You know, that's why people join like atheist clubs and things, so that they're not the only godless person on the block. They can go meet with other people that don't believe something. So just like life, you know, is a, a matter of consuming uh, and reproducing yourself on a daily, weekly basis. And then if you can be a part of that for a lot of people, that's a value. I don't have a problem with that. A lot of writing and a lot of the arts is about that, right? I mean, like Woody Allen says, saying Woody Allen says these days is a crazy thing to do. But anyway, Woody Allen said recently that pretty much the, the truth about life is every hundred years, the entire human race is wiped out and a whole new set are in and life is just a, a meaningless slaughterhouse, really, or at least a, a long process of decay and replenishment. And that the role of the artist was to get people through that to give people something, some illusion, some story that would help them live through through that, through an absurd life. So, you know, there's there's an upside to that. But for radical Marxists, our hope is to say, not only can we help you get through the day, not only, we're not just an opiate for the masses, we're like real medicine. We're going to cure you of something, right? Speaking of Woody Allen, I used to be a, a crazy big Woody Allen fan until like I kind of read Marx. And now I look at Woody Allen and I kind of go, gee, you know, how self-involved <laughs> and how how liberal, yeah, you right. know, oh, the religion doesn't work anymore. Let's give him Woody Allen. You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, so I, I actually I, I kind of find it hard. People used to say to me, I can't. I can't look at Woody Allen. I find him really, you know, he annoys me. And now from going from the biggest Woody Allen fan thinking he was hilarious. Now when I see Woody Allen, I just kind of go, God damn it, Woody, like, is this, is this it? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, I had that experience watching, um, like, right after 9-11, watching Manhattan, because I thought, you know, I'm going to watch Manhattan. New York was just attacked. Uh, it's a great movie. It's a great celebration in New York City. And I was watching it, and I was going, God, these characters are all so obnoxious. Like the biggest problem on earth is always that you figure out who you're going to screw on the way home from Bloomingdale's. You know, this is really a self-involved narcissistic movie. And then, I don't know, several years went by and I, uh, maybe some part of my self-righteousness died and I decided, oh, those, yeah, it's not much, but it's still funny. It's still a funny movie. So I don't know. Like the guy, you know, the guy is one of the greatest comedians of all time, in my yeah. opinion. But uh, n now I just... I, I can't look at him in the same way. Right. And he's a nihilist. I mean, that's his own admission there. His later films, like his recent films now are just, they're not just kind of crap. They kind of stink, if you know what I mean. Like, it's all about really, really rich people, you know, from upper class New York and something that annoys them. You know, it's not just talking about middle class people or intellectuals whining about this, that. But it's like, it's about the super rich and it's like, Jesus, Woody, like, his earlier films, his best ones, they weren't all these, like, super wealthy families. You know, there was something different. Maybe there were artists who were successful or something, but they weren't these uber-rich people. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I haven't seen a Woody Allen movie, actually, in, in a while. <clears throat> so, the last one I saw was um, Midnight in Paris. Did you see that one? Oh, oh, no, this is one that didn't get a release over here, I think. Yeah. Who, who's in it? Owen Wilson. Oh, yeah, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah, he gets um, unstuck in, in time and ends up in the 1920s in Paris. Is it good? Yeah, it's pretty funny. But he is from an extremely wealthy family. There you go. I mean, he's his marrying, he's thinking about marrying into this extremely wealthy family. And he's a, he's a, he writes for the New York Times or something. And he's, but he said, I want to give that up and write a novel and live in Paris. 
And that's like the bohemian move. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I'll just be a successful novelist living in Paris, which is my way of slumming it. <laughs> right, right. Like instead of traveling around the world in jets all the time, and you know, that speaks to us all. <laughs> yeah, right. UC Berkeley did a series of these behavioral experiments using a rigged monopoly game. So one player had certain advantages that would lead him, lead him or her to win more money while playing the game. So uh, the way that they rigged it was the following. Uh, they were secretly recorded, uh, of, and it was multiple rigged games of Monopoly in which one randomly chosen player in a randomly selected group was given certain prior advantages such as twice the money, greater ability to move around the board, more than two dice, uh, and more access to resources, higher bonuses for passing go. Okay, so as these players are accumulating more wealth in the game, and even though it was rigged, they became even more obnoxious about their winnings. They became more and more entitled. So to give you an example of how that happened, after just 15 minutes of play for each game, the researchers began noticing dramatic behavioral changes in the advantaged players. Uh, observed changes ranged from louder, more forceful movement of their game piece and other displays of power to seemingly trivial things like eating more pretzels. So to give you an example, um, you know, as they're playing, uh, the person who has all the advantages would like move their pieces like that, you know, be very, very aggressive with it. They would grab more pretzels and eat them aggressively. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you. it's so <laughs> Tell us about this other book you're working on for Skyhorse. Who are Skyhorse? Skyhorse is a big publishing group that's relatively new. I'm not sure when they started, but they started within the last 10 years. Um, they, they bought up a lot of independent book companies and made them imprints. They publish a lot of different kinds of books. They're growing all the time. And one of the imprints or book companies that they bought was Nightshade Books. And Nightshade Books published my first short story collection. So when my first novel came out from Tor a little over a year ago, uh, I was approached by a former editor or an editor over at Nightshade, but now an editor at Skyhorse, saying, hey, why don't you send us uh, your next novel? And I said, sure, Tord's just sitting around not really telling me one way or the other what they want, and uh, I'm out of my contract with them, so yeah. So I agreed to write a book for them, send them a proposal. They said yes. Then the contract was signed and the contract said uh, yeah we need it all in three months time <laughs> and so i quickly set to work writing a masterpiece and uh, it will come in coming in august oh what's the masterpiece about have you decided yet it's called <laughs> i don't know i'm still rewriting um so what it's about is very difficult to say at this point no it's about it's actually i do have a plot does that mean you actually haven't started it yeah yet? i know i've re no i'm revising I'm no, actually, I really am revising. I've written, I've written a draft of the book and turned it in, and my editor can attest to this. So it, it is underway now. It's not. Uh, I was a little late, a couple of weeks late, but I got it in, and I'll and I'll be revising until February. Uh, in the middle of February, I gotta get the final draft into them. But it's about. It's called After the Saucers Landed, and it's about a ufologist who goes into a kind of depression after the saucers actually arrive, after the flying saucers make themselves known to everyone on Earth. Because the, the, the people on board the saucers look exactly like uh, one of his competitor colleagues' vision, you know, descriptions of the saucer people. And that guy was clearly a fraud all along. And so it's like, you know, like those 50s contactee stories about the, you know, beautiful... Nordic type aliens with blonde hair coming in sequined gowns and that kind of thing coming out and giving you the wisdom of the ages before they take you to their alien bedroom and you know help you uh, repopulate their world or something like that. Those kinds of stories, <clears throat> those are all true. So it, your guy is like the, the shit Jeff Goldblum, is that it? Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe this cliche story, this kitsch crap is reality. And so he's not, yeah, he's not happy. He's a, he, he would like a more interesting set of aliens than these. 
is a comedy then it it is somewhat yeah it's yeah surprisingly it's somewhat funny i hope it's it's also though the main character is son of kind of loosely based on bud hopkins i mean he's not bud hopkins at all but he's kind of loosely based on him because he was not only a ufologist but also um an artist bud hopkins was an abstract expressionist hung out with jackson pollock and motherwell and and those guys and um, mark rothko knew them all and and then became a, a ufo researcher and um so that's what my character's like only he was a member of fluxus fluxus is an american avant-garde art movement kind of influenced by dada part of it was a, a an art movement called male art that was not men but art that you could mail to people the idea was to bring art down to the everyday level to bring the grand and the magnificent and the visionary into your lived experience every day they were around the edges of people like john cage those artists would hang around with those guys in new york in the early 60s and that's the art movement i chose for my ufologist to have been involved with so i get to write about those days and that kind of thinking as well as ufos and then it you know it turns out that aliens are actually a little more interesting than we originally thought they're they are doing there is this conspiracy there's something they're doing to humanity you told me about two years ago you were going to do a star trek one yeah and that's still something i'm working on i just it's kind of got put on hold for a little while but like since that i like i've had a kid and i had lots of time on my hands and i've watched nearly every episode of every series of star trek wow in preparation for an interview with you about it but it's never happened yet (laughs) well but you it was worth it even if my book was never written you know you've gotten to see those great episodes now and you you understand why i would want to write a book about star trek right <laughs> i was watching so much of it that i was starting to classify each episode within the first you know few minutes you know you'd have one you go oh this is a time time distortion on this one. <laughs> you know right. or, or this one is a, a new alien life form that exists only in the world of energy that we've never experienced before it's probably like watching you know law and order and you right. there's only about five plots yeah yeah I've, I've i did that with the television show house but at house there's only one plot <laughs> yeah but, but for me it was like okay i would look at the clock and go okay they're going to be bleeding out their eyes or and or going into a seizure and or flatlining in three two one now and every i could actually i time like when i could go you know get a drink or something based on when they were going to bleed out and and on the show they ever bleed out of their anus they do they have that's very disgusting <laughs> they've done everything on house the only thing that they never had on house was anyone with lupus oh, that's a, my, my girlfriend is lupus <laughs> oh, yeah, is that right diagnosed last year this no. year last year Oh, sorry. But because um, on the show, on the house, it was always, you know, like one of the differentials, one of the possibilities during the differential would be lupus every time. Because one, one of the things that they, the patient could have is lupus. And it never, ever was lupus, ever. Well, that's ironic because, like, my girlfriend, our partner, Precious, she was in hospital and they couldn't figure out what she had. She was in, like, intensive care for 10 days. And then it turned out to be lupus. Well, that's why probably they had such a hard time. Was because they said it can't <laughs> yeah. be lupus. It can't be. You know, it's never lupus. It's I. We've all watched House, and that's the rule. I actually, my father's a doctor, and I watched the when he was here for Christmas. I watched an episode of that show with him, and he was appalled. The medicine or the acting? Oh no, the acting was fine. You know, but the medicines. It's like that. A doctor, you cannot just start radiating a patient because you think it might be cancer. You, you know, you can't just. You got to have. You got to you got to prove that you can't just start treatment. He's because con- House was constantly just you know. I think it's this. Give him steroids. Oh, and what what happens if it isn't that? Then we'll know. It will eliminate that. <laughs> if he gets really sick and almost dies, then we'll know it wasn't that. Star Trek was pretty interesting, man. Like when I was watching it, I was surprised after like reading some marks and watching Star Trek. It's basically the most radical program that's ever been on U.S. telly, as far as I can see. I think so. I think so. It's basically a communist society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a vision of a communist society, absolutely. Overtly so in, in many episodes. But they do have their capitalist aliens, you know, in, in the later series, the uh, the Ferengi. Yeah. 
yes no it's a it's a it's a brilliant show and but when i'm writing about it or when i when i was writing about it when i get back to it uh, what i like about it is not so much the communist utopian vision of it although that's great but the way certain philosophical problems get played out over and over again they just keep coming back trying to solve the same philosophical problem like from the very first episode on so like the, the the main philosophical problem i think that they're trying to deal with is uh the master slave dialectic from from hegel explain this okay <clears throat> well have you ever seen you've seen the cage right this is the only part of the book that i that i've actually written yet so this is why i go to it it's like it's not a trailer but it was the the pilot episode and they never aired it and then they did finally later after it became you know a cult classic they put everything out but the in the cage the question is you know what can you trust to be real because there's an alien race on the planet that can control and project ideas into your mind and captain pike not kirk gets trapped by these aliens and they're trying to get him to mate with the beautiful blonde alien they have there for him so that he can restart their race or something like that but the the main thing is throughout the whole episode the question is you know how can pike be assured of himself through his relationship with the you know with this outside force with the aliens and or how can the aliens be assured of themselves through control of pike and it's it's all of a question of perception and knowing of your, yourself through your perceptions and i didn't explain it very well just now but it, it really is especially because there's this epistemological question at the center of it it really is a great match for the dialectical relationship between master and slave in hegel's uh, phenomenology of spirit uh, and i think that it comes up over and over and over again in these different guises throughout the series the surprising amount of kind of challenging episodes in it it doesn't play down to the to the viewer no i think it was i think gene roddenberry was really trying to think through like the problems of his age and be consistent progressive you know that i think that he was trying to create a progressive television show and he was working to create a vision of what the future would be like if you know from a progressive vision and and because of that he had to he kept running up against the same problems that plagued liberal modernity all along but my problem with the show is so many people either watch it just because they want to see the same thing again whatever it is that they've seen a hundred thousand times and they just sort of are just geeks about it or a lot of people watch it supposedly critically but more about you know does it match whatever our social norms are right now you know how how is how good is it at being multicultural or feminist or what have you you know can where can we score it on a scale of one to ten is it a six the seven the sulu a racist char character or a great progressive character you know those and then none of those debates interest me i want to i want to get to like you know what are the problems that the show is trying to deal with and what can we take away from and to understand those problems better um well i should run off i gotta go do laundry here actually yeah let me do an official uh, let me do a proper one uh thanks doug yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> and we started the podcast? Yeah. Oh, shit, I forgot to press record. <laughs> on this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and the tax-avoiding pseudo-liberal that is Jimmy Carr, with his postmodern sexist jokes, accompanied by Scott Joplin's maple leaf rag. You also heard Sidney Beche's Situ Vama Mare, with Dylan Moran opining on the pitfalls of potential, and the YouTube star Darnell Bennett telling us all about Dan Brown on ABC World News Tonight. The Young Turks also told us of the tendencies of the rich, as the OJ sang to us of their love of money. And you are now listening to Django Reinhardt with Ain't Misbehaving. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.
And remember, if you want to leave a review for the show on iTunes, the instructions are included in the show notes. So, um, so we talked about everything and nothing today, haven't we? Somehow we should infiltrate iTunes. That's probably what we should do. If we were a proper revolutionary party, what we, we should do is get somebody working in iTunes and get our podcasts right up there. Juice the stats or something. Yeah, baby steps. Baby steps. I got zero books, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> yeah, well done. <laughs> and so now... That was a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a tough nut to grab. Yeah, when you, get, when you infiltrate the Wall Street Journal, come back to me. Okay. <laughs> All right.